0: Welcome to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from around the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. Hey, Jordan Rich here, Boston-based broadcaster and podcaster, and it's such a pleasure to work alongside Diane on her podcast, a true pro and one heck of a storyteller. Today we have one of the top criminal attorneys in the field, Rosemary Scapiccio, who's featured in the Netflix documentary Trial 4, an eight-part series that follows Sean Ellis' 22-year pursuit of freedom After he was wrongfully convicted of a murder. After working tirelessly to uncover evidence of police misconduct, Rosemary secured Ellis' release from his decades long nightmare. It's a riveting story which should make for a great podcast. So, Diane, take it away.
1: Hi, Rosemary. Hi, Diane. How are you? I'm fine. Welcome to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. I'm delighted that you accepted the invitation. This is going to be a special podcast today. For those of you that don't know, Rosemary is a criminal defense attorney here in the Boston area. And today we're going to focus on a Netflix series. It was a documentary. It had eight episodes and the name was Trial Four. And Rosemary, my friend told me to watch it in the middle of the lockdown when there's nothing else to do. My significant other is Netflix so my friend said to me, "You've got to watch this thing. It's about Boston, and it's a it's a great take. It's eight episodes. So I put it on, and I think, right away, like in the first episode, there you were. I'm like, oh my God, it's Rosemary. So that like intrigued me even more because I know you, but um, it was, to me as a layperson that watched it, we can get into the particulars in a minute, but as a layperson citizen, I was outraged." It was outrageous at every step of the story. I was like freaking out. And my first thought was, how could this happen? You'd expect something like this, a miscarriage of justice to go along, like in a third world country where people don't have constitutional rights. That's what killed me. We're in Boston, Mass. It's not backwater. It's sophisticated. And how under our noses this was happening is just, it blows my mind. And one other thing that I thought was interesting, there's a woman that was in the in the Netflix series. She was a school teacher of Sean Ellis, the person that was um, wrongly convicted of a murder. And she said one thing that really struck me. She said, we live in two Americas. One America would be a poor Black person, and the other America would be like a middle class or upper middle class white person. It is two Americas and it's disturbing. So maybe we can start with the beginning and Rosemary, feel free to, you know, if I get tripped up on things, this is just how I saw it. So I want it to be accurate. So please, you know, feel free to jump in. But this whole thing arose from a murder that happened in 1993 in September in the wee hours of the morning in a Walgreens parking lot in Rosendale, Massachusetts, the victim that was shot five times in his face was Detective Robert Mulligan, a member of the Boston Police Department, as he slept in his vehicle during a paid detail. Like right out of the gate, what's wrong with that? He's sleeping on a paid detail. Just saying. So you want to take it away, Rosemary? and sure. tell your- uh- <clears throat> So uh, once um,
2: they responded to um, the calls for help from the employees at Walgreens, uh, they began an investigation. Uh, it turned out that simultaneous with the investigation into Detective Mulligan's killing, there was an investigation, a separate investigation into uh, cousins of Sean's that had been killed. Um, and Sean was wanted to help as far as that investigation is concerned. Uh, so there was a detective uh, Brazel who reached out to him and said, you know, basically, can you come in and talk to us about your cousin's homicide? And he said, absolutely. Yeah. And he made arrangements to go in and he sat there and talked to them for hours uh, about, you know, his cousin's homicide. But the, the real purpose of that meeting had nothing to do with his com- cousin's homicide. Uh, at one point during the time that they were there, uh, Detective Brazzle, who they were three dirty cops, Brazel, Sarah Robinson, and four, if you count Mulligan, which we do. Um, but they were essentially um, in a position where they needed to stop the investigation as to what was happening with Mulligan. Because they were committing crimes together with Mulligan, they were concerned that if this investigation took its normal course, uh, that their criminal activity would be exposed. And their criminal activity was uh, that they were out there um, producing fake search warrants for people they thought were dealing drugs uh, and going into their homes and, and stealing the drugs and the money. They were immediately then putting the drugs back on the street and they were pocketing the money. And this was a scam that had been going on for well over two years before Detective Mulligan was shot. Um, And and so they were desperate. They, you know, Brazel, uh, Asara and Robinson were desperate to stop that investigation. Uh, And they did certain things, in my opinion, to to make sure the investigation stopped. One was, I believe, Asara stole Mulligan's phone. Uh, He had a cell phone in his car. Um, and the cell phone would have told us who we talked to last. Uh, right after Mulligan was killed, uh, there was a woman who was visited uh, by two detectives who she described as a Sarah and Robinson. Uh, and they told her she was the last person to have talked to Detective Mulligan uh, on that cell phone. Uh, now, <clears throat> the cell phone, they claim that they were looking for in the car when they, when they after they took Detective Mulligan's body out, uh, they went through the car with a fine tooth comb because this was a cop killing. Uh, and they claim that they forgot to look in in, in the compartment between the seats, um, which we call the secret compartment. But it's not really secret because everybody knows it exists. Uh, and they claim they missed a cell phone. And back then, the cell phones were pretty big. They had, oh, like, yeah. you, know, you know, oh yeah, we have today. this is yeah. what the size of the cell phone was. Sure. Um, but by the time um, they figure out that they, or, or Sarah says that they missed the cell phone, uh, Sarah goes into one of his buddies and he says, "Hey." I have this idea to search the phone, you know, search the car again. And just so you know, we got the inventory of the of the car the first time, and it was down to like pink paperclip. Like that's how detailed they were about what was in that car. And and the theory of the Commonwealth was that they missed this giant cell phone. And when they do get the cell phone, as it turns out, uh, the cell phone is completely wiped clean. And so they don't have any explanation for how these two detectives could have visited this woman um, who who it's clear that they did. There's no report about it. There's no anything about it. And it took us years and years to actually find her uh, and, and get her into court so that she could tell the jury, uh, tell the judge the truth about what had happened. So so the case started to, un, you know, to unravel almost right away. So they had to get rid of the evidence on the cell phone. Then they went to Mulligan's apartment. They stole his money. He had a bunch of money uh, hidden in his apartment, we believe, based on all of the drug dealing that was going on. And as Sarah and Robinson are, are the first through the door and all of the money from his, uh, from his safe is gone. Uh, so nobody knows where that is because, you know, I think Sarah and Robinson took it uh, and maybe Brazil too, who knows. Uh, but in any event, nobody understands that. But, but everyone does understand that, you know, Mulligan is living far beyond his means. Uh, he was a cop in, in you know, in, in, in this case, and in, in was making maybe $100,000 a year. I think he was making close to like 77, $78,000 a year, even with all the overtime back then. Uh, but he owned six condos in West Roxbury. He owned a place in New Hampshire. He owned a place in Vermont. Um, you know, he, he was driving around in, in, in uh, very expensive cars. One of them was a Corvette. Um, and, and nobody questioned how he could have made all of that money. Um, and so the investigation goes on while Sean's sitting there. And finally, Brazel says to him, you know, cut the shit, Sean. We know you were there. Tell us what happened. And Sean says, "I was at the at the Walgreens that night, but I I didn't see anything. I don't know anything. I don't remember right. seeing the car uh, right outside. Maybe I saw it, but I don't. You know, it doesn't stick out in my mind at all. I went and bought diapers and came home. And as soon as he admitted that he was there, Brazel's antenna went out. Brazel understood then that this is the guy that we can pit it on. This is the guy. Awful. It stops the whole investigation if we if Awful. we arrest some nineteen year old black kid and exactly. say he's the one." Even though he had no connection with the crime, with the crime whatsoever, even though he had no, oh. no reason to want to kill Mulligan, uh, he, had, he had no connection with the Boston Police Department at all. And the theory is that him and his co-defendant walked out of the Walgreens and decided to rob a police officer of his service weapon and, and his throwaway weapon. So because Mulligan was a dirty cop, he had what we call a throwaway weapon on his ankle. Uh, it ended up being a white pearl-handled revolver. Um, and whoever shot him knew that he had that gun on his ankle because the holster to that gun was still on his ankle and the gun wasn't there. Um, And I don't know many people who walk around with a holster on their ankle and not their gun. And so Sean would have had no reason to understand that he had this extra gun on his ankle. And the theory is that um, Sean and his co-defendant, according to the Commonwealth, opened the door to Mulligan's car as he slept, reached over Mulligan's sleeping body, unholstered his nine millimeter clock that was on his right hip uh, and then went down to his ankle unholstered that gun uh, and took it closed the door because you don't want to shoot someone when when the door is open and then the window was open about this much something somewhere around five and a half six inches uh, and then put their hand through that open window uh, and shot him five times in the face and the autopsy photos show one two three four and went up the nose to five, which is an impossibility to do from standing outside of that car. Yeah, but Nobody questioned it. Nobody, nobody said, wait a minute, this, this can't happen in this way. Um, and so uh, once Sean admits that he was at the Walgreens that night, they stopped the investi They stopped the interrogation. They go and get, they, he, they said, prove it. He said, there's a diaper receipt on my cousin's table. They go back, they find the diaper receipt. And now he's the perfect suspect. So everything then starts to, to unravel for his life uh, and everything yeah. starts to fall in place for the dirty cops oh. because now they've stopped the investigation. They have a suspect. He's a young black kid. Even though he has no criminal record, they they can make him be the villain in this case. It's much easier to believe that a young 19-year-old black kid did this than anyone anyone else. And like I said, they were desperate to stop the investigation. Um, so they do their investigation It turns out that Kenny Asara, who's one of the dirty cops' niece, claims that she was at the Walgreens that night. She claims that she sees Sean Ellis crouching by Detective Mulligan's car. Only she's got this connection with this dirty cop. And the way that the identification takes place is that she gets driven to the police station by Asara and Robinson. Asara and Robinson are in the room with her while she's allegedly making this identification. They show her uh, an eight photo ID, she starts to hyperventilate because she claims that some guy was stalking her and he's, his picture is in that photo array, which turns out not to be true. Uh, so they cover up that photo and they say, can you see the man, do you see the man that you saw at the Walgreens? And she points to a guy who's not Sean Ellis. Uh, and she says, that's the guy. And they don't have her, typically when you do an, you know a photo array, they have you sign it. They have you tell you where, the, where you saw this guy, how you relate that guy to the crime. They do none of that in this case. Then they bring her husband in. And he points to the same wrong guy, not Sean Ellis, and says, this is the guy that they see um, crouching by the, the um, car. And, and then they take her back downstairs. And within five minutes, a Sarah and Robinson, and I think it's Robinson comes running up first and tells the detectives that um, she was too scared to make the right identification. She's now gonna make the right identification. So bring her back in. So this is the third time with the same photo array now. She knows two pictures are gone because they've already told her they aren't those two. Right. Uh, and now it's down to a six person array. And ultimately, she identifies the person uh, who she thinks was crouching by um, the um, Molly's in the car, and she says that it's John Ellis. And now they have a witness who's willing to say that it was him. They have a receipt that puts him in um, that, that car or that, um, that store that night. And they have a statement admitting to being at the Walgreens um, at a time that's earlier than when the, the, the shooting takes place but they take care of that. And and they claim now that, you know, there's, there's one guy, Victor Brown, who says that he sees a VW rabbit and Victor Brown, it turns out, uh, originally said he saw the VW rabbit 10 minutes before um, Sean even arrived at the, the Walgreens. So he called back um, I think a month later and said, he realized that his, his, the clock in his house was, was 10 minutes slow. And that's why the time difference didn't line up. So, Ultimately Sean went to trial there was a hung jury the first time around a hung jury the second time around the third time around Sean was convicted uh, Of the murder in the robbery and he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole.
1: Can I ask a question at this point? Sure. How did this run amok? With, it's like a three-person crime spree, and they're all Boston cops. Yeah. How did how did up, upper echelon of the you know police? How did they not know this was? They turned a turn a blind eye. What happened? In fact, the commissioner of the
2: Boston Police knew that both Mulligan and Robinson were under investigation for ripping off drug dealers because there was an anti-corruption file opened on them. Um, because they had information that they were doing these drug ripoffs. And, and that same commissioner allowed Robinson to be on this you know 50-person panel of the best and the brightest um, police officers to try to solve Detective Mulligan's um, murder. So he was absolutely 100% aware of the connection, never turned it over to any, any defense attorney. He claims he didn't turn it over to the prosecutor. We don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but the bottom line is that he knew about the connection to the drug dealers. And and the two attorneys who tried this case, uh, Norman Zalkine and Dave Duncan, knew right. that Mulligan was a dirty cop. They just couldn't connect him to what was going on. So when he got convicted um, on the third trial, right after his conviction, the federal court indicted a Sarah Robinson and Brazzle. Brazzle becomes a cooperating witness. A Sarah right. and Robinson essentially bargain their way out of it. Uh, and end up doing less than than two years apiece uh, for every for the 31 different cases that they charged them with of right. stealing from uh, people, whether it was people they thought were drug dealers or whatever the situation is. Um, so once the the trial attorneys figure out that they know a Sarah Robinson Brazzle are dirty cops, they include that in the first appeal to the SJC, saying we know they're dirty cops, we know that they they worked with Mulligan. This should be enough to get us a new trial. And the SJC said. We agree that they're dirty cops. We agree with what they did is horrendous, but you can't connect that at all to Mulligan or to this investigation. Therefore, we're affirming the conviction and he spends the rest of his life in jail.
1: Can I just interject here? When you say SJC, for people that aren't in Boston, Mm -hmm. that means the Supreme Judicial Court, the highest court in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Yes, I'm sorry. But when I remember you went there because Judge Ball, Carol Ball, gave you guys a new trial, Yes. But the Commonwealth went up to the SJC, Supreme Judicial Court, and kind of like was like, no way. Right. And you know what? God love Judge Gantz. Yes. On that documentary, what he said was awesome. Right. You know, he was just so cognizant of what was going on and he, he, he was awesome. And you guys got your new trial. Yes. And that was just so, I was like, fine. You know what's so sad, Rosemary? how many years it right, took 22. You to get to that point, how I, I just, it, it blows my mind that, that it took that long to get justice for this kid. It's well, one of the
2: reasons that it took that long is because when I came into the case, I had to connect Mulligan to the corruption. Right. Um, and so I went on a campaign to do that because I, I had to believe that, the Boston Police Department had to, had to do their own internal investigation about the corruption. And Mulligan had to have been involved in that, in that internal investigation. So I started filing FOIA requests at, through the Boston Police Department, asking them for all of the information in their anti-corruption file, for the internal affairs files. And they literally screwed me for about 12 years awesome. um, to the point where I actually had to file a civil
1: suit against them to get the documents you never gave up you were tenacious and you know can i just say something that i think is is so interesting about this whole thing the the powerfulness of the media because if sean ellis's teacher he was in the Metco program which is a voluntary busing program he it's for inner city kids that supposedly are going to get a better education if they go out to a suburb i think her name was ms murphy if she didn't, ha- by happenstance, see the Boston Globe article and she saw her former student, Sean Ellis, on the front page of the Globe, like she wouldn't have pursued it. She was instrumental in helping you. And Sean Ellis himself, if he didn't see you on TV in the drunk gold case, he wouldn't have written you the letter and things that he might be sitting in jail right now still, in all <laughs> probability. Just to correct you, Diane, uh, yeah. Elaine Murphy wasn't actually his
2: teacher. Elaine oh, Murphy she Elaine. was. No no. Elaine Murphy was the mother of a student. Oh that's married. right. So her son and, and Sean got paired together. It was schoolmates. Program, so they were the host family. That's so- right.
0: I have two questions that maybe listeners have, and I have not seen the documentary. I apologize. I will now. Uh, one is, it seems as though it was circumstantial at best, uh, the, the diaper slip and him just being there. Was there any more physical evidence that they were able to convict him on in that third trial? And number two, uh, at this point, Rosemary, he is not, Or has he received any compensation for the injustice of spending so much time in jail?
2: Let me take the first question first in terms of was there any other physical evidence? The other physical evidence that they claim they they had were guns that they claim they found right across the street from Sean's house, buried in a field that they claim his girlfriend's prints were on. Um, and, And this is the same fingerprint unit that had subsequently been disbanded. Uh, for having faked fingerprints in the Marlon Paisley case and a couple of other cases. Um, so we wanted to try to challenge that at the original motion for no trial that we did. Uh, Judge Ball wanted us to focus on the murder in the, in the um, robbery case, and that's what we ultimately did. And she wouldn't let us get into the fingerprint aspect of it. But that's what they're trying to say, that Sean was linked to the guns. Uh, there was another claim that the fingerprints on the side of Detective Mulligan's car actually matched his co-defendant, Terry Patterson. Um, but that's been disproven. That never happened. They use something called simultaneous print impression, which essentially means that there's no one finger that actually matches. But if they take the fingerprints and they just superimpose them over each other, they can find enough points for of comparison to make a match. And that's not accepted in the scientific community. It's been the fingerprint that that Print our alleged print was looked at by the FBI and said it's not even close. It's not Terry Pattison's print, and so that's the way that they tried to connect him to this crime. Uh, that's the way that they tried to claim that he was involved in this crime, um, and, and he spent 22 years in jail for a crime he didn't commit. Um, and, and in terms of has he gotten any compensation? Because the gun conviction was still on his record, he's not able to apply for any compensation because when Judge Ball reversed the conviction, she only reversed the the murder conviction and the robbery conviction, not the gun conviction, because that happened in a separate trial. Um, and so we have subsequently filed a motion for new trial on the gun conviction. The new DA, Rachel Rollins has agreed, uh, assented to our motion for new trial on the gun conviction. And we actually have a hearing in front of Judge Elman on Monday um, to figure out what, if anything, the court needs to look at uh, before ruling on the motion for new trial regarding the gun conviction. And it wants that, if we're successful in getting that conviction set aside, then Sean will be free to sue the city of Boston, the Boston Police Department, and, and anyone else who we can think of that was involved in in covering this up. First of all, making it happen, and then covering it up for 22 years.
1: How can we ensure it doesn't happen again? We can't. That's the problem. So oh.
2: because the way the way that this whole thing happens, and you see it in the documentary, is that ultimately we're fighting, um, you know, the fourth trial, and we're looking for additional evidence. And we knew that certain witnesses were paid money. Uh, for their assistance in the case. And so we were looking to try to, to try to follow the money trail because, you know, witnesses can forget what happened, but, but the trail of money should always be there. Uh, and so we spent over 18 months trying to file motions with every single solitary agency we could think of who might have had their hands in that reward money. Uh, and we were ultimately able to find out that the guy who said, who said he saw the, the rabbit outside of his house, uh, right. Victor Brown, received $9,000 in reward money. Sanchez and her husband received close to $15,000 in reward money that was never disclosed to the defense attorneys at trial. In addition, uh, we were able to discover at the uh, motion for new trial hearing, we got access to the entire anti-corruption file that they were willing to give us. I think there's more. Uh, And we were able to see that Detective Mulligan, Detective Robinson, and others were under investigation for 18 months prior to Mulligan's death for these drug ripoffs, and that they had at least one reliable witness from Brighton who said that he had information that would connect both Robinson and Mulligan to this individual um, drug, two different drug ripoffs that took place in Brighton uh, and that that the commissioner had actual knowledge of that and did nothing. Uh, And then we had the tip lines. So when Detective Mulligan was killed because he was such a a dirty cop, there were so many people that wanted to kill him. Uh, And so there were over 200 tip line calls that had come in to the tip line that they put it up Sugge- you know, suggesting other people that might want to kill Detective Mulligan. One of them was a cop by the name of Armstead. And, and the claim mm-hmm. is that Armstead um, had a, an adopted daughter who was seen driving around in Mulligan's car. And Mulligan abused young women um, significantly. Yeah.
1: He,
2: um, he would take them for qu- quote unquote rides and, and have them perform sexual favors on him. Um, and then agree to either get their cases, criminal cases dismissed or not charge them for something that they might be holding in their, in their pocketbook. In any event, um, the story goes that Amstead uh, knew that Mulligan and his daughter were in the same car. He then um, had some words with, with uh, Mulligan. He then told his son that he went to the Walgreens and he shook Mulligan's car and he realized that Mulligan was sleeping and that someday somebody was gonna find Mulligan with a bullet between his eyes. And that's essentially what happened. You know, those those tip line tips were never turned over to the defense attorneys at trial. We didn't get them until uh, almost 20 years later. Um, And and they they proved to be um, pretty fruitful in terms of how many enemies that Mulligan had before he was killed.
1: You know, um, this whole thing, I just want to underscore that we're talking about dirty cops, but there are many terrific cops and law-abiding cops. They must be livid that these people acted the way they did, because it gives all the other offices a bad name. But well, this Mulligan was really a bad actor. Right. He had fought, he was a workaholic, supposedly, and his nickname around the around the police station was in plain view. Right because plain of view Mulligan. That was him. That's plain right. View because he always said the drugs were in plain view, so he didn't have to go get a warrant. He, uh, by, but, you know, there was another person that was featured in, in the um, series. His name was Jose De La Rosa, and he was from the Dominican Republic. He came to Boston. He was an aspiring baseball, you know, going to be a pro ball player. It didn't pan out. He goes over to Logan Airport in Boston, gets a job. His story it's so disheartening that this happened. But he comes home from work one night. He gets a gun pointed at his head by Walter Robinson, one of the dirty cops. Give me your keys. Pushes poor Dolorosa into his apartment. His girlfriend is sitting in the apartment. They tie him. How, how barbaric is that? They tie him with a rope to a, to a chair. Yes. And then they throw, they bring them down to the police station. Don't even tell them why they're bringing them down there and throw cocaine in front of them and say, this is yours. You're in trouble. Like, unless, no, no. They said, this is yours. You're in trouble. Unless you can tell us
2: who you buy from.
1: Right. But he didn't know what they were talking about. Right. No, he had no idea. What he was wasn't a drug
2: dealer. He was never a drug dealer.
1: Wanton. There was like the wild, wild west. These guys weren't ra- The reins weren't pulled. It, I can't believe this happened. I believe it. But it, it's, so, it, I just, as a citizen, I get so upset. Well, in this. terms of, of, you know, how can we be sure it hasn't
2: happened before? And <gasps> again? What the Boston Police Department and the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office did before Rachel Rollins took, took um, the reins is they dismissed Sean's um, case. They null it. They basically said, we're not going to go forward with trial. Rightfully so. Um, and, and when they did that, they had this press conference, which of course I wasn't invited to, but that's a different story. Um, and they basically said, uh, you know, this isn't about innocence. This is the, the commissioner of the Boston Police Department at the time, who was a black man, stood up there at the press conference and said, this has nothing to do with innocence. Uh, has You know, this isn't about innocence. This is about the fact that witness memories had faded and, and we can't, you know, nobody can remember what happened. A, that's not true because we talked to the witnesses. Um, but but more importantly than that, um, they hadn't, the district attorney's office and the police department hadn't done one single thing to follow up on, even one of those 200 tips. they hadn't done anything to follow up on on um, the, the drug aspect of this, you know the, the drug ripoff act. Not one thing, not one report was generated the whole time we were awaiting trial on the trial for. So it, it's impossible to, to, to determine you know what happened if you're not looking. Uh, and so for the police to get up and say this isn't about innocence, we think he's guilty, but we have to dismiss the case because they, you know the memories of the witnesses have faded. After all these years, is is a way of not taking responsibility or holding the department accountable at all for the actions of these cops. And so, if you're not going to acknowledge that there's a problem, then no one is ever going to fix it. And I always I always equate it to you know a plane crash. When when there's a plane crash, the right. NTSB comes in, they go find the black box, they want to find out what's happening, they do a huge investigation to try to determine how this happened and why that's happened. And that's because they want the public to have um, you know, confidence in, in being able to ride the, these planes again. And so they have to come up with that so that, that we understand what happened and was it pilot error? Was it, you know, a mechanical failure? And if it was a mechanical failure, we're going to show you and tell you transparently how we're going to fix it so that you have the confidence in getting on an airplane again. They don't do that in the criminal justice system. If you're able to deny accountability and say yeah. it wasn't us, this wasn't a situation that we did anything wrong, he's guilty, but we're going to let him get away with it because. We can't find the witnesses to convict them in the, in the fourth trial. You know, you're not taking any responsibility for the actions, and therefore you're not doing an investigation. You're not trying to find out what happened. You're not even investigating all of these other people that that these cops put in jail wrongfully uh, because you haven't acknowledged that it's ever happened. And that's where we're left. And that's why I think a civil suit is so important because they will have to, they have to own their own actions. Um, and, and that's what I'm we're, hoping we're able to do.
1: You know, there's two things just for me as a layperson sitting in a courtroom working that's, that jumped out at me when I was watching this documentary. Number one, lickety-split, his deceased body was removed from the premises. That never happens, number right. one. Number two, how in heaven's name were drug unit p- cops participating in a homicide investigation? You tell me that. Not just participating, but, but they are linked to
2: every single solitary piece of evidence that they said connected Sean they were doing the interviews of Sean. Yeah. They they were finding the phone. They were getting the identification witnesses. They did the arrest in this case. They did the perp walk in this case. Every single solitary piece of evidence that they wanted to point at Sean's direction, they were involved in. And that's why the you know the conviction was so infested with the corruption that you couldn't oh. separate one from the other. And that's why um, you know, when Judge Ball granted the new trial and the Commonwealth appealed to the seven justices of the Supreme Judicial Court, it was a unanimous seven to nothing decision that Sean did not, and written by Justice Gantz, that Sean did not get a fair trial, that, that the corruption infected this entire uh, investigation. In fact, I think Judge Gantz called it a game changer, that we could now connect Mulligan to the corruption. And And, and, and in their opinion, all seven of them, he did not get a fair trial.
1: But, you know, another thing that struck me early on in the investigation, first, they tried to pin it on Mulligan's girlfriend and that didn't square. So then they moved on to poor Sean Ellis. And the thing about that got me was he had a girlfriend who had a baby. It wasn't clear if it was his baby or not, but she had a little baby. And they went to her and they said, we can take your baby from you. And they made her testify that he gave the guns to her. And in fact, that she was terrified. She was a young, impressionable girl. Like, and the only fingerprints found on those guns were hers. How many people handled those guns, please? Exactly. And so
2: Tia Waka was her name. uh, And she was a girlfriend of Sean's. The the, the child was not Sean's. It was somebody else's. Uh, But Tia and and Sean stayed uh, in contact with each other and then reunited again when Sean came home. Um, and, and she was adamant that they were threatening to take her kid away. And, and as a single mother of, of a toddler, um, you know, she basically said she had seen what they were capable of doing to Sean. And she was very concerned that either she would get charged or they would take her kid away. And so she did exactly what they asked her to do. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think had a tremendous amount of guilt as a result of that. And, and I think one of the most poignant scenes in trial four is Sean saying, I don't blame tia for what she did i blame the boston police for putting her in that position and that's exactly right the the blame should go on them for putting her in that position because what are you to do as a single mother of of a two or three year old when that's right take that child away if you don't do what they tell you to do and you know that they have power because they've just indicted your boyfriend who you know had nothing to do with this right Um, the power of the police is is what the focus of the investigation should be instead of blaming tia walker
1: now, another thing that got me in the investigation was when they were interviewing the co-defendant, his name, as you said, was Patterson. If I got this right from what I watched, they say that he nodded his head affirmatively when they said, was it Sean? Now, his attorney was with him, Nancy Hurley, and I know her. And I, from what I see, first of all, she's a great lawyer. She is the most forthright, upstanding person. And she said she never saw him shake his head. Well, she didn't just say she didn't see him. She said it never happened. He said it never happened, and I, I put my money on her. You can he take was it. so
2: enraged by that report. Oh, that she wrote a letter to Phyllis Broker, who was the prosecutor at the time, and said essentially, "I was there. I was sitting right next to my client. It never happened. That that shaking of the head thing never happened. He never did that." Um, and and oh. and she was adamant the, about the fact that he had never done that, and and you know that went nowhere either. They they just sort of discounted that and and you know tried to use it as a way to separate the two trials. Sean Ellis's from Terry Patterson's um, based on the fact that they claim that Terry Patterson was implicating Sean Ellis. But, you know, that whole thing is, is one of the of the tactics that police sometimes use, which is to divide and conquer co-defendants to make you think that your co-defendant is saying something against you that they never right, said.
1: Because right. they
2: knew that report was going to get turned over to Sean. Uh, and they knew Sean was going to be upset because allegedly his co-defendant is saying he was involved when he was never involved. Um, but that's what they do. They divide They try to divide and conquer but it didn't work in this case.
0: Has there been any talk of reopening the investigation into the murder of this policeman in the first place now that we've gone through this whole process, Rosemary?
2: None, because the Boston police still believe he did it. In fact, uh, when, when Rachel Rollins fi- filed the uh, motion assenting to our motion for new trial on the gun case, the interim commissioner um, wrote a letter Uh, basically saying that this is the wrong thing to do, um, that this is not appropriate given all of the information that they think they have. Uh, Even though a a Superior Court judge after hearing all the evidence said that he didn't get a fair trial, seven judges of the SJC said he didn't get a fair trial, the police department is still in total denial. And until we, we are able to hold them accountable, nothing will change.
1: And Rachel Rawlins, just for the record, for people that aren't in the Boston area, is the current district attorney of Suffolk County, Boston. But, you know, the thing that got me, like, was when that cell phone wasn't there, then it reappeared. But the last phone call went to that female that was, she sent a prostitute the night of the murder, so she says, down to Mulligan to service him. And then someone named Mr. Eye, C- Mr. C. He supposedly was so fed up with Mulligan for bullying the residents of where he lived in some complex where he was the maintenance man. And supposedly, Bunny, the prostitute, ran back to this other girl. I don't know if I should say her name. That's why I was protecting her name. But she said, you're not going to believe what just happened. I was just down with Mulligan and Mr. One-Eyed C shot Detective Mulligan and she was very upset. So Mm -hmm. there's another theory right there. I mean, evidently, Mr. One-Eyed-C was murdered in 05, so. Right, and just so you know, the very first
2: report that came out of this investigation, um, the crime scene services people were of the opinion that Mulligan was shot from inside the car, not outside. Somebody was in the car. That was their initial report. They buried that report for a very long time, but their initial report was that he had been shot from inside the car.
1: I still don't know why they removed his bo- body so fast from inside right. the car. He was dead, right? Not a single photograph of his body in that car. And wow. we all know, I've been on enough murders and so haven't you. They have more photos. You could sink a ship with how many photos are taken. But you know what? I think we're just about out of time. Am I right that somebody, a, a French Docu- guy did the doc who did the documentary how did you get into it like were you able to have any say over like how did that go um so so they approached me a a woman by the name of Alison lugcheck
2: uh who was one of the producers approached me probably seven or eight months before we ever agreed to do this and said would you do it and i immediately said no i'm a criminal defense attorney and my client's not talking to anybody uh and then i had a conversation with sean and sean you know, rosemary I, I i think it's important that people understand what happened here like the depth of what happened here not going to come out at a trial. We need to be able to educate people about what happened because they're not going to do their own investigation. They're not going to, um, you know, hold any any board responsible here. They're not going to hold the police department responsible. So maybe the public uh, can put pressure on them to do that. So Sean was adamant that he wanted to do it, um, and and they required that I basically give them unfettered access to him, which is always a scary thing. But you know, they they were busy following us around for probably over two years. Um, so it was Allison uh, and Ben, uh, who were the producers. And then it was uh, Remy, who was from France. And he was actually the director. Uh, wow. And he was the one who sort of decided how all the stuff went together. And he edited it. And they were just, the whole crew were, were just wonderful. They were wonderful. It was very stressful to walk around, you know, with a mic on half the time. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, it was, I think they did a great job. I think they got the message, uh, certainly the message that that Sean and I wanted the peop- the people to see from this, which yeah. is this corruption is, is, is still unchecked here. Uh, and even though there might be some, um, you know, decent police officers, you, you can't have confidence in what's happening here in Boston until you understand how and why this happened and, and give some assurances that it's not going to happen again.
1: Well, Boston has a long storied past with it. I mean, with the Chuck Stewart case with, you know, Willie Bennett, and that's a, a podcast for another day, but, and then we had the busing. I mean, we really have a long, is a stain on the city of Boston in that regard. I agree, no, I agree. But thank you so much, Rosemary, this was You're great. On. But last question, the tenor today of the BPD, the tenor today of the Boston Police Department, what do you, I don't think it's the same place at all, do you?
2: I do, in the, in the sense that they're not willing to acknowledge any responsibility, the first entity that ever, res- or they ever acknowledged responsibility for what happened to Sean was Rachel Rollins's office. And she said, this isn't just on the police, this is on my office too. Uh, because my office could have looked in the right direction 100 times and they didn't. And so she said, this was a dark period in our history. Uh, the corruption was rampant during that time. And, and I'm not going to stand behind this conviction any longer. Uh, because I'm confident that the corruption w- was so infected this trial that there's no way that Sean got a new trial. And immediately after filing that, the interim Boston Police Commissioner um, sent out a letter in support of his 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 um, you know constituents, saying essentially this is the wrong thing to do. We don't agree with it. Uh, you know, we, we don't think this is the right thing to do. We should respect the Mulligans Mulligan's family. Uh, and so again without taking responsibility for what happened, it's impossible for change to happen. Um, change happens with you know a progressive DA like Rachel Rollins uh, and some hard decisions that she needs to make. And she did that in this case, and still they didn't support her the way that they should have. Any
1: last thoughts, Jordan, or are we all set?
0: No, except uh, you've sold me on watching the documentary, obviously. Yes, and, Trial uh,
1: 4 on Netflix.
0: And it's really remarkable, as Diane points out, that uh, here we are almost 30 years later, and we're dealing with a, an issue that's very much in the news around the country in various ports. But uh, thank you for bringing attention to it, and you laid out the case uh, from your perspective as well as anybody could. Thank you so much, Rosemary. Well,
1: thanks Rosemary. For Thank you so much for coming on. And um, I guess Suffolk County is starting jury trials at the Moakley Courthouse soon. So I'll be seeing you. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. I'll see you. Bye-bye. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye-bye.
0: We have a postscript, news that broke shortly after taping the podcast. Calling it a sad chapter in the history of our criminal justice system, a Suffolk Superior Court judge effectively ended the prosecution of Sean Ellis, throwing out the remaining gun charge against him in the 1993 killing of a Boston police officer. Ellis spent 22 years in the state prison before his murder conviction was overturned. And speaking at a hearing that lasted just five minutes, Judge Robert Ullman said Ellis' conviction for illegal firearm possession was likewise flawed and could not stand.
1: This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice.
0: Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.